0: Welcome to Mind Reading's Experts in Conversation podcast series. This project explores the patient experience through the prism of literature and personal narrative to inform self-care, patient-centered care and practice, animated by the question of whether doctors and patients speak the same language and how we can use narrative to bridge the evident gaps. Mindreading began as a collaboration between UCD Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and the Diseases of Modern Life project and the University of Birmingham, expanding to include colleagues across the UK and Ireland, most notably the UCD School of English Drama and Film. Our intended activities comprise a series of explorations around the central theme of literature and mental health and function as independent events but brought together by their intent to explore the best ways of drawing on the insights of historical and literary research and contemporary medical practice in the field of mental health. The podcast series, Experts in Conversation, brings together some of the key themes of the 2020 conference, which we have to postpone, and is brought to you by the ORCPI Archive, and this episode is brought to you by the School of Agriculture and Food, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Committee, with particular thanks to Frank Monahan for making it possible. One of the things that I was struck by across the the presentations today was the tension between the particular, the individual and the general. And I think one of the main areas of interest that we're discussing in this podcast series is how do you balance that? particularly when we're talking about enhancing clinical encounters and enhancing clinical practice, how in the context of medical education, in the context of interdisciplinary work, in the context of employment, how do you take the richness of those individual stories and try not to lose it, but allow for something that can be generalized? So that's, I think, the place I'd really like to start. And I might start with Erwin, if that's okay.
1: That's a really, a really interesting question. Um, uh, the first thing that came to mind when you discuss it, Claire, is that, um, I suppose one of the parts of my job that I'm um, most heavily involved with is is building an acute rehabilitation service for children with acquired brain injury in in Temple Street. So these are children who have just had their injuries or are in hospital, um, trying to get better to go home or to the, the national rehabilitation hospital. And, um, we obviously, these kids, we know their diagnosis and we know what their their uh, their mechanism wow. of injuries were. Um and there are certain standardized measures that we use um of uh I suppose their level of of, of dependence or independence um and of their abilities to attain certain goals. Um but one of the things that tends to get lost, I, I suppose it's, it's it's one of the reasons why communication is such a, a crucial aspect of rehabilitation. Um is about those individualized, uh, I, I suppose, stories and the particular things that, that that pertain to those families specifically. You could take two children who were hit by cars on the same day with very similar injuries and very similar acquired disabilities as a result. And on paper, they might look identical. Um, but it's only, I suppose, by having, I suppose, services that are well enough resourced and well enough briefed to know that, that their role is, is not just to meet those things that you can see on paper but to know how each individual person and family got to where they are because the difference that can be i suppose is the difference between saying or not saying something that will completely traumatize one family or contradict something that somebody else has said uh, and for long admissions in, in, in hospital that stuff can can be really really detrimental and um, families if they're not if you're not working in a system that puts the family narrative at the center of it families get the idea that we're not listening and we're not hearing them um so it's very very important to build a system system that 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 primarily speaking has communication at its heart so that uh, those stories don't go missing
0: yeah i think that's, that 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 speaks to something that we've we've had come up i think liz will correct me if i'm wrong but that we've had come up in every episode um so far the importance of not only of listening but of being also seen to listen being it, it being clear that 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 listening that active listening is taking place and how to how to equip clinicians I think with with the capacity to Marie, you put it so beautifully invite them in, invite people into the silence um I think is is a really is something that requires huge consideration and is 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 it's it's really important to think through how we can do that and one of the things that we're interested in in mind reading is how humanities methods can do that and a, another term that came up across the board was uncertainty and living with uncertainty, living with multiplicity and the the fact that none of these are the right answer, but the right answer isn't what you're looking for. It's figuring out how to balance the multiple possible right answers that there were. So Maria, I wondered if, if you might sort of say something particularly I was interested in your your work with the, the therapists, um, especially. Yeah, just
2: one thing, Claire, I'd say that, the, that language um, is very much Jerome's language when he talks about... He actually talks about the the clearing as a space that he wants to open up, where people stammer, people who stammer and people who are non-stammers can come in and experience just clear clear up space outside of our privileging of uh, fluency and certain forms of time and to be and to be with them. So, um, his work is really a testament to how important the language is that you use, because just by talking about a clearing, it's just such a rich type of image. It invites us in in sort of so many ways and yeah no I think so that idea of um you were thinking about the work with the the therapists, but in particular Claire in
0: in general really but just how you'd how you'd respond to the the same question how do we how do we not systematize exactly but it's
2: it's a really interesting part I mean one way I suppose one thing I'm thinking about is at the uh conference one of the therapists uh Mary O'Dwyer her presentation was actually a collaboration with her client. It was very clear this was not a case history. this was not an expert coming in and using um, an individual who stammered as a test case or as an illustration. This was absolutely a non-hierarchical collaborative approach. So what they both talked about, the therapist reflected on her practice, how she changed as a therapist, over the years, how her work with this client had shifted her sense, what he brought to her through his expertise. And then most of, the, of that presentation was the person who stammered. Um, I suppose telling their story, it was a narrative type of therapy. Um, and it was very much most of the time was for him. Yeah. So he had, he had he'd control of the circumstances of coming there sure. with the therapist he'd established the power sharing that was there. Um, and it was really interesting, you know, how they talked about what had developed from their relationship, not what he had been taught, yes. but what they both learned from that relationship. And I know this was another way, maybe uh, thinking of the therapists who are working with children and with uh, adolescents, what, what Erwin er, what and what Liz were saying about the camp, both Fiona and um, M- M- Mary work very much with the dream camp, series which brings um, young children and adolescents who stammer together and again it's, it's this balancing maybe of what they share with their individual sense of their stammer and it's very much about I think so much of, of the experience is peer experience um, and again I'm not sufficiently familiar with it to speak to it but I the sense I get from it is that enormous part of it is Feeling not feeling alone that there's um, a normatizing that use the word in a different sense that this isn't just a difference this this is difference and diversity but it's shared yeah. there are lots of people like you and um, and that sense of maybe being um, othered or isolated is very much changed by the uh, com- the uh, the communality of other children and adolescents who both share your experience but have different perspectives on it too. And again, Jonathan Linklater's work with the Irish Stammering Association as well, works with adolescents through drama. And there was just one other thing I was thinking, Claire, that one of the things that the group working in cultural representation, what they asked the therapist was, when you invite people to tell their story, do you give them prompts? Is there a template here? And, you know, it, it was very interesting because it wasn't saying this is wrong you know we obviously use metaphors metaphors can be really enabling but maybe to get to suggest that therapists reflect on the way in which they might be guiding and shaping that narrative so i've no quick answers to that but for me it was very interesting for somebody who works in a narrative when they hear narrative therapy they're thinking okay well who's who's shaping this narrative are there prompts here that are leading it in particular ways
0: I think what you said, Maria, really kind of highlights one of the central questions that, again, that we keep coming back to. And it's something that both yourself and Deirdre mentioned in your own stories about disclosure. And we we can't, you know, the, the, the challenge is we can't sort of say, well, you know, Deirdre, will you come and talk to every doctor in the country, please, about your experience of disclosure and, you know, in your copious free time, how do we generalize or make available that narrative? And there are questions of, power and availability and, and guiding.
3: Yeah, I, I suppose I'm just really struck by, you know, again, just talking to, to, to people uh, about this and their kind of experience of, of disclosure and trying to kind of generalise it. Uh, which, but really good listening skills, you know, really, really active listening and, you know, and GP training and that just that, that focus on, on, on really good level of, of listening skills, I think are, are, is so important. You know, and, and on the kind of the other side of that, we have talked and just talked about, you know, how difficult it is to convey your own story. You really are only getting across, as I say, you know, 10% if you like of what you want to get across, which does bring us, I think, to the, the use of kind of, you know, literature, you know, social media and so on, just in really supporting people to, to do that. And I know why. You know, when I get frustrated, as I say, with the warrior narrative and the bravery and so on, but back to people like Jenny Diskey, who writes in such an articulate way about this and the kind of the anger, I suppose, that's of jumping off it, uh, the page. Um I suppose that those kinds of, of sources are, are really helpful for people and, you know, just even to give somebody that book would be great. But there is definitely a kind of a, a sense of powerlessness, I think, sometimes among people with disabilities in, in just the, the challenge of trying to communicate full reality of, of their lives and, you know, not helped by the fact that people just don't feel listened to or seen, I think, you know.
0: Well, Hemingway would agree with you on the iceberg, uh, the iceberg idea there. And I, I mean, I wonder, is that is that one of the ways that we can that we can help scaffold those listening skills is is to sort of to to engage and to try and to try and promote the kind of close reading, the, sub, the, the analysis of subtext and structure? That is that is what we you know, what we do in, in, in literature, because it's what's becoming really clear from everybody's contribution is that listening is as important as speaking. We've talked a lot about the language that we use, but also that silent space, that clearing idea, is, is it's becoming really clear that that's equally important. Speaking of listening, you've been wanting to come in for, <laughs> for a while, Liz
4: Barrett. I was just really thinking about that, that dichotomy, because we're kind of talking about two different things. We're talking about lived experience and how do we find ways and frameworks and maybe models where people can feel engaged. And then the, the separate thing is how do we train professionals working in these areas? So they're, you know, and sometimes we kind of mix up the two. So the first one about the idea of how do we model this, or what kind of creative ways can we find that scaffold people who who need that as they go through systems? And I was thinking about um, things like the water sports inclusion games, which bring people together and empower them, but also which allows volunteers and students who are participating as volunteers in the games that allows them to gain experience. Uh, in parallel with families. So they're there just as Erwin was saying um, with his experience in Australia, you know, that people are gaining experience on the ground in real life and getting to know young people and families as they engage in an initiative like that and how powerful that is, you know, but not every student is going to be able to to do that. So what do we do next? And I was thinking about social prescribing, actually, as Deirdre was, was talking. The idea that actually there are social ventures we can engage with and community partners to scaffold some of this. So I was thinking about Breathe Magic, which is a project in the UK. Erwin might know about this. It's a project for young people with cerebral palsy to provide intensive OT and physiotherapy treatment. But it's provided in the context of Magic Camp. So you go to Magic Camp where you have intensive physio and ot and input over a couple of days with the group of other children and families and at the end of the week you put on a magic show where you show how much you've how many new skills you've gained because you learn the magic tricks by using physiotherapy and ot methods to do that how creative is that you know and the outcomes from it are fantastic and you know it's been economically evaluated but also how much more acceptable and how much more young person centered Mm. and I wonder when you know when services are really busy and as Erwin said sometimes we're trying to shoehorn things into services that aren't individual centered do we have the creative space to think about options like that if social prescribing and arts and medicine are kind of a place to think about those sorts of initiatives.
0: I love that term social prescribing. And I Erwin, something that you said really, really struck me when you were talking about the camp in Australia. You, you see these children navigating obstacles that would never ever come up in a clinical context, and actually that are the most that, that are probably the most important to their kind of day-to-day experience. And so that idea of the creative space, um, and Marie, I think this ties in with the work that, that you were that you were doing, bringing together the clinical and the creative. To find ways to to promote that creative space, both in the context of clinicians and and for and for patients and people living with diagnoses, so kind of bringing together the clinical and the holistic, the creative, and fostering that space across the board seems to be a really a really important thing that's that's emerging. One thing as well that that was mentioned a couple of times that maybe that maybe now is the time. Um, a few of you mentioned the fact that COVID has given a lot of people who don't live with a disability a taste of what it's like to to be restricted in in your to have obstacles placed in your way for the good of you know for, for health reasons for, for public health and, and personal health reasons so perhaps now is the time to to start thinking about to start radically let's just radically rethink the health system because it's not like you guys are busy or anything you know <laughs> is there a moment here that we can start kind of finding new ways to think about what a health service can do not to be too ambitious about it I would defer I, to the clinicians on this one
1: I, I think if it would if it wasn't going to be now you'd wonder when it would ever would ever be um like the most cataclysmic of things you could think of in terms of the way we think about this and as it was like you know there were there were two things about COVID that sort of emphasized sort of the lived experience of people with disabilities. One of them was the actual disability that people acquired from yeah. having COVID and from from not being able to participate in their lives the, the way they would have had before. The, and the, the second obviously being the restrictions placed by, for public health measures. But if, if we could all remember what we were thinking, certainly what we were thinking in hospitals right back at the start and looking at all the awful scenes from Italy of not enough ventilators to go around and there were... Um, you know, there were emergency uh, frameworks being drawn up for what we would do if we had to ration healthcare and there wasn't enough for, for people there. And and obviously quite separately, there was a document that was drawn up that completely excluded people from disabilities from it, which is a whole other kettle of fish. Um, But the interesting thing that happened is suddenly you had the entire country aware of the situation of, well, like, what do you mean there might not be medical care for me, uh, which is a very common experience for people with disabilities and, and, and which is kind of uh, blithely tolerated by everybody else uh, is the thing. So I thought I, I, had, I had hoped that perhaps it might open some eyes. I don't know if it has, but I, I do agree it is an opportunity, or at least it should be.
4: There is definitely this sort of hierarchy in medicine, and it's always hard to define and dilute it. And it's kind of a very hidden curriculum, I suppose, in a way, in medical school. But I suppose it is a little bit of reflective of, of societal constructs and societal stigma around health okay and I suppose in a way never before have people been so aware of the impact of physical health on mental health and vice versa so everyone out in the world now is aware of the impact of an illness like COVID on on everyone's mental health and on everyone's abilities to engage in day to day, you know, civic life. So there's never been a time like this where people haven't have been so conscious of the impact literally day to day of physical health on well being and vice versa. So I think it's really an important opportunity to ta- to change the narrative around stigma yeah. and the interface between physical and mental health. So I think there's a real opportunity, but I think we have to engage around that as a society. And I think it's very hard to ask patient advocates and experts by experience to do that all the time. So I think that's where we, the professional groups and the humanities groups, need to support patient advocates to make sure that lived experience and patient voices are at the center of all of those societal changes. We need to empower people so that we can support a a societal shift around the duality of kind of physical and mental health. Um yeah, and I absolutely agree with Erwin. This is this is a, a good time to think about that.
3: There, can I just pick up on, on a couple of things there? You know, first of all, we were saying earlier about kind of the role, if you like, of the, the expert by experience and I suppose awareness raising is, is great, but we all need to move beyond that and you need to really find your you know your allies, I suppose, in, in these arenas who will kind of take up cudgels on, on your behalf. Because I, I think people do get exhausted, you know. But I was really struck as well in, in almost a kind of a hierarchical issue in relation to disabilities and invisible disabilities. And it even arose in the context of, of disclosure, because a, a couple of people I encountered had, you know, both, say, say a disease like, like, for example, multiple cirrhosis, whatever, but also had other invisible disabilities for example, you know, mental health issues or um, autistic issues or ADHD. And they all said they were more than happy to kind of disclose and discuss like the physical issues, but were much more sensitive about disclosing mental health issues, whatever. And they really felt that that was still much more stigmatized. So I suppose not all invisible disabilities even are created in, you know, this, so I was really fascinated by, by that because it's another layer of complexity as if it wasn't complex enough. I'm really
2: listening to colleagues here on the panel here at the front line here of advocating and, and, and working particularly with uh, children. But I'm just aware of speech and language uh, therapy. The resources for that have been so uh, decimated in years. I know colleagues who report such long waiting lists and, and stammering is only a small part. Of their remit as speech and language uh, therapists. So those things happened when the economy was in a better shape than it's going to be as we come out of this recession. I think the challenge coming out of this recession and my worry is that there will be a big gulf between hopefully a change in attitude, Mm -hmm. all the reasons we're talking about a change in uh, values and what we value in terms of ourselves as citizens and as a community, and then the economic story unless there's a huge change in how we advocate, unless it's a critical mass of people who can have political action on the streets. I hear what people are saying this is should be a turning point, but we are coming up against hard-nosed economic types of facts that will be used to stymie this. And what makes me very suspicious of them is that those facts are used even when the economy was was doing well people were still told that
3: there wasn't funding so
0: again it kind of comes down to a tension between narratives on the one hand there is scope to change there is scope there's transformative scope there's an opportunity there's will but the competing narrative is where is the money coming from i think that that's that there's a, a, a constant and ongoing central tension between i mean erwin you pointed out earlier the, the sort of the systemic issues of how you would like to practice medicine and how medicine forces you how the system sort of forces you into particular particular steps.
1: It's a really interesting point that Maria makes that that we've been told time and time and time again that there isn't money for this and there isn't money for that. Like what we're talking about is providing for children to have their basic rights met or for, and for adults with disabilities to have their basic rights met. And the reason why the powers that be are comfortable saying that we don't have money for this is because they have in their minds separated one group of people from another. And what we need to do, at least amongst people who are working at the forefront and advocating for that, is to constantly hold up a mirror to the fact that that is a false distinction and that disability issues are not some separate category of thing, but in fact, it's everybody's business. You you cannot say that we're, we're not going to provide for rights because these people have disabilities, because in fact, all you're saying is that there's a category of, of citizen about whom we care less. And I suppose as, as long as people call elected officials out on that, I, I think we can hold our ha- heads up re- reasonably high that we're doing our bit, but it, it is a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge because that kind of attitude, the children with disabilities we expect them to wait for things that other children don't wait for anymore that is now hard baked into society into societal attitudes and it will take a long time to bake them out but it's as good a time as any
0: we can we can start with the language Maria you wanted to come in there well just to finish off it's uh,
2: in some ways a um, a quick point I mean it's but it actually follows on from what Erwin's saying you know how could cultural uh, narratives support these kinds of changes and I think One of the things that we talked about um, in the metaphoric slams numbers group was how radical it would be to have a narrative in which uh, stammering or disability was just one aspect of the character's self. There's still space for narratives that focus on certain points of disability and inform people. But where are the narratives where a character has a disability and it's just part of the plot? It's one plot line, one thread. And I think the divisions that Irwin's talking about, the divisions between disabled and non-disabled can be broken or perhaps challenged in those cultural forms. I mean, I was thinking, there's you know, so few examples, but um, Silent Witness, the television programme, as Liz Carfrey just played the forensic scientist in a wheelchair, um, and she's very she's spoken very strongly about the importance of that, the importance that, that, her, that her disability wasn't the dominant note in terms of how her character was written. It seems a small point, but since the disability takes a smaller role yeah. in some ways, but a more important one in just saying closing down those dichotomies and showing our disabilities as part of the richer, complex part of who of who we are, ebbing and flowing through through our lives.
0: So visibility in both creative and cultural. At representations as well as in advocacy forums. I think working working together sounds like the way forward. Toll order. <laughs> um, but that sounds like a that sounds like a good place to to wind up. So I just want to thank our panelists again. Um, we had Deirdre O'Connor, Erwin Gill, Maria Stewart, myself, Claire Hayes Brady, and Elizabeth Barrett. So thank you so much.